Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I'm joined in the Beach Shack with Colin Fasnich, the celebrity chef. Now he talks about growing up in Ireland, how he learned to cook, then the move to Australia where he went into pub dining, and now he owns his own restaurant. Also, he talks about the tough times being a chef and his mates that have committed suicide over the years. He talks about the tragic times that some chefs have to deal with and also talks about his campaign with the domestic violence against women. So sit back and have a listen to my chat with Colin. This week in the Beach Shack, I've got a, a mate of mine I've known for a, a little bit over the years. We've done a few things together. Colin Fasnich, how are you, mate? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. Now, I thought I'd get on and tell your story and, uh, you know, you moved to Australia, but let's go right right back when you were uh, you're born over there in Ireland. And did you, grow, did you grow up in Dublin? Dublin, um, yeah. My parents, my old man owned a shoe shop. My mum uh, was a florist, so I worked that out. And, uh, <laughs> like, I always wanted to cook, and they were very supportive because I wasn't really much good at that now, so I hated school. And... Back then, if you wanted to be a cook, it was sort of, I, I sort of related to that movie, Billy Elliot. Remember, like, the, you weren't allowed to dance or do stuff that wasn't manly. So it, it, it wasn't a manly job. It was sort of, what's wrong with you? You want to cook? <laughs> yeah, but my parents said, if you're going to do it, go work with the best. So they were very supportive when we were young. And, like, everything in our house revolved around the kitchen table. So there was, you know, we had no iPhones or iPads back then. So it was all about talking and food was a big part of it. Well, that, so you, from a young age, you actually wanted to cook. So when, when did you start at home in the kitchen or how did that come about? 11, 12, I reckon I was cooking. Like, I, you know, I was making dinners and burning stuff and my elder would be going crazy. The pots are burned, the smoke all over the kitchen. But, but it's just a little passion I had. And then I worked actually in a bar at the back of a kitchen like I was 12, collecting glasses. I don't know if that's legal or not now. <laughs> I was, and I, I, was, I would watch the chefs in these big events, and I was like, mate, I want to do that. So from there, when obviously you, you finished school and, and then got a job as, as being a cook? Or, or... Well, I finished school. I actually passed, believe it or not. And uh, I went to catering college. So um, in, in, it's a proper huge college in um, Ireland called Calbrough Street. <clears throat> it's actually very hard to get into. So I got into that and I trained there for two years. On my nights, at night time, I worked, I worked two jobs in two restaurants while I was at college. So, but I had a ball at college. I loved it. And it, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Like long hours, like a lot of uh, hours get put into being a, a chef. Well, yeah, but we were we were uh, we were working. I looked when I was an apprentice. I went to work for Raymond Blanc, and I worked for Gordon Ramsay and all the big boys. 
Like I worked in the best places in the world. You were working 16 hours a day. And, you know, it was just nonstop. It was grueling, but that that's that's what it was. Like, you, you don't get away with that nowadays, but that's what it was. And then, so, did you move to Australia after that from when you were living in Dublin? Yeah, so I was in Dublin, and I was working in a restaurant that got a Michelin star after six months. There was only four of us. I was the bottom of the tier, uh, the little shit kicker. <laughs> uh, the guy promised me if I stayed two years, he'd get me a job with Raymond Blanc, who's one of the most famous chefs in the world. So he um, was in Oxford, so an hour from London. And this place is it's two Michelin stars. It's top of the top. So I moved over there for two and a half years, and that was just hardcore. That was just getting your ass kicked every day. <laughs> <laughs> and in that era, it would have been pretty full on, wouldn't it? Mate, there was forty, there was thirty-five chefs in the kitchen. Eight of them were pastry, and the rest were just. And it was just an asylum. Like I've seen some wrong shit go down. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, there would have been uh, plenty of abuse and yelling and and uh, and stuff in those days. Physical, mental, like some of the, when I think back, some of the stuff I've seen, like it's so bad what they did, but uh, they would just break people. And uh, yeah, that's what they did. Okay. Wasn't good. No, not good at all. Now, when did, the, did you decide to move to Australia and, and what was the reason? So I worked with this guy called Justin North in that place I was talking about. So we worked together for two and a half years and uh, he's a Kiwi and he said he's gone back to Sydney and there was a place called Bank, a restaurant in Martin Place. And he goes, come over. And I said, I'll go over. But I only went for like a holiday. Cause, and I said, I want to be a barman or something. Like, I want to I want to hang out and get chicks and go down Bondi <laughs> Beach. And, you know, I don't want to be in a kitchen. I've just done two and a half years, like in a hellhole. And uh, he introduced me to Liam Tomlin, in, who had the restaurant. And the next day, I was in the kitchen, like just working. Like, it was grueling. But it was the top place in Sydney at the time. But, mate, I met some of the best people in the world. And... When you meet people, it's obviously a lot of um, getting picked to go to other jobs and other restaurants, and it's a lot of a, a close community, isn't it? it? Even like I'm in Australia, and I know guys in Ireland, England, Spain. It's a very small community when you get to like a certain level. Everyone knows everyone. And it's sort of when you go to another country, if you want a job, you always know someone there. Or like one of your guys wants a job in another country, you just make a phone call, they've got a job. Mm. So what age were you when you came to Australia to do that? I think I was 20, 26. I was, yeah, 26, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> a good age though, wouldn't it? Coming to Sydney and uh, in that, that period would have been pretty good. Mate, I came in 1999, just before the Olympics, and the city exploded. I was like, look at this joint. I'm going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, the Olympics were great. We had the uh, the stadium for the beach volleyball on Bondi Beach. It was uh, yeah, 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 massive time then, wasn't it? I may I I, I used used my time well. Just say. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, did you do after that? Did you move on from that that restaurant? Yeah, I worked in um, establishment for a while, and then I ended up going to Four in Hand, which is an old pub in Pado. I worked my arse off there, and all my mates had got like the awards, and I was chasing them. And this was only a pub, but we ended up finally in the end getting two hats. Like, there's only you can only get three hats in in marking wise, and we got two, which is unheard of for a pub to get. And uh, that's where we sort of made our name then, like the only two-hat pub in Australia, well, the first ever. Well, you must have been around that. We used to go to the forward hand a fair bit in, in Paddo back in back in the day. It was a great yeah, pub. 
Yeah, you probably went prior to when I was there. It was a, it, it was a bit rougher then. Yeah, it was, it was a rough pub in Paddo. A lot of pubs were rough in Paddo back in the day. But So tell us actually a, a bit about how you get a hat and, and, and what's that about? Because a lot of people listening probably don't understand it. It's like hats is all about, like one hat, it's about the food. Then they're, they're checking the service, they're checking the seats, the tables, the toilet. They're like, in the old days, it was very, um, they scrutinized everything. Two hats is, you, you know, your knives, your forks. The, the, the service has to be impeccable. The food has to be next level. It's it's like, it's so, it's there's so hard. Well, they were so hard to get. I think they're giving them away a bit more freely now after the uh, pandemic. But I mean, it was it's all about excellence, really. And you've just got to be on the ball all the time. It's very stressful, actually. Uh, and this was all before um, social media. So Back then, if you got a bad review in the paper, like you closed your doors. I know places that were busts over a bad review, which is which is a horrible power for this for those few people to have to wield over you. But now social media's taken all that power off them. Now at the forward hand, how'd you turn it around? Was it it would have just been a, a, an ordinary pub, and then you came in, and did you have a vision and and, and of where it should have gone to? I sort of, yeah, because I'd worked in fine diners, and I sort of did my version of fine dining, but it was sort of a rough Irish fine dining. <laughs> uh, so it's a mix of, and I, I do a lot of uh, secondary cuts, like whole animals. So we buy in all the animals whole and break them down ourselves. So we did sort of rustic sort of, I would say, Irish Australian food. And, um, and then at the start, no one was coming in. We were doing six covers a night and we were like seriously worried. And my business, business partner's like, mate, but we better turn around fast. And then we started to get a little bit of recognition in the media or whatever. And, and then it just took off from there. And then it was just packed full all the time. Because I remember going, did you do the Sunday? Sundays were big down there. at the Huge. We used to do sun- We used to have the restaurant to be full, the two hot bit. And then we had the pub that would just do like Sunday roasts. And the whole place was just rocking. Like, it was packed. It was great. It was a great – Pado at that time was great. So I knew the guys up in the Grand Nash as well. Uh, we were all friends. Like, there was no um, enemies. Or, like, usually chefs are all enemies and fighting each other or whatever. But, uh, like, we, we, it was a great little community. Everyone helped each other out in Pado. It was great. And tell us about, like, when it does get busy, the, the, the stress of – Having all the orders coming in and, and having your, you know, obviously you're not the only person in the kitchen. You've got to look after everybody else. And geez, it must be stressful knowing what meal to get out and cook and timing. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you've got a good, you've got to have a good team around you. And it's sort of when you get to a certain level, it's all sort of mapped out. It's not just, you know, throwing out a snail schnitzel or whatever, <laughs> but it's, um, you've got to have a good sous chef. But like, mate, it's, in the early days, there was a lot of screaming and shouting. It was very angry. Yeah, let's just say it was a very angry kitchen. In the early <laughs> days, pre-kids. Yeah. <laughs> what about if someone sends a meal back that, that they, don't, they don't like? Does that, is that something that that's a, is tough to take? In the early days, yeah, when you're young and your ego's uh, whatever, but I think it's like, it's like chefs saying that they, um, they don't want to cook for vegans or vegetarians or... Nowadays, after we've been like we've been through a recession and we've been through COVID, like it's money. Like, and if you're if you're so ego soap your arse, you're not going to last very long. You, like sometimes you are wrong. Like not all the time, but sometimes. And if someone says blah blah, you just do it because everyone's money is paying the bills. So then, after working in the pub, did, where'd you go from there? 
well, I had I had the I had four in hand while I was I was employed there, and then we'd won all these awards or whatever, and like I was known as this chef, like a great chef in Sydney, but it wasn't my restaurant, and I was just on a wage, and I was like like this is bullshit. I just had my first daughter, and I'm like like I don't own anything, and so I told them I was going to leave. And then they shit themselves <laughs> because once the chef goes, like the building's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So then we did a deal where I borrowed money off them to open 414, which is a restaurant in Surrey Hills, which is like a big, big brasserie, cool joint. And um, I, I borrowed 900 grand and the joint just took off. So we had the two hat and then that got one hat and I paid them back in six months. That's how busy it was. The joint was was rocking, so we had that for six years. That was great. Oh, that was that was good. And uh, when when you get a hat, though, does that put more pressure on to keep it at that standard? Yeah, it's not actually nice actually when you get it. Like the first two weeks, you get all the people coming in with the paper and what it said, and they're like, "Oh, it's not as good as it, as they say." And you're yeah, just yeah. like, "Mate, like just go away." I don't yeah, yeah. Like those, and those people will never be back anyway. They're not like your your customers. So sometimes the hat can be the worst thing ever. And that was so, that was successful. So does that start then get you a, a bit more of a profile as a chef and, and moving up? Because then eventually you you went into you know, TV. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> right. That, that's the story. See, this is the story. So if anyone has ever seen the movie called Chef, it's about a guy who has this Twitter rant and it goes like through the roof. So one of my managers goes, oh, you should do more social media. And he goes, there's this thing called Twitter. And I'm like, well, what's Twitter? And he goes, you can say whatever you want on there. So there was a food, there was a TV person in one night and it was a whole pig dinner. We used to do whole pigs and she didn't, she was a vegetarian. And I wrote Twitter like blah, blah, blah. Fucking, I hope we can swear on this spot. And uh, say whatever, it's like Twitter, yeah, mate. You say whatever yeah, you want. Yeah. Well, I, did. <laughs> I, I basically, I did and I, sent the tweet and I didn't know that everyone could read it. I thought I was talking to my mate. And then the next day it was like out of control. And um, and my kids are waving at me, close the door, will you? Um, uh, And then I sent this tweet off. Then there's all these journalists ringing me going, mate, what's going on? And um, I said, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, that tweet has gone like viral and then, then it was on it was in page two of the, the telegraph of my war with this person and i was like holy shit. my business partner's like mate you're out of control like you, we could go bust we could get sued anyway long story short channel seven wanted someone who was um sort of vocal uh to be a judge on mkr i said ricky Proust called me and is now a good friend of mine and he sat me down at the end of this big long table at Channel 7. He goes, oh, I want you to be a judge on this show. And I'm like, I, I don't watch those crap shows. I'm a real chef. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, he goes, I'll give you 35 grand to do this to do this show. And I was like, 35 grand? That's a lot of cash. Now I realize when people get paid in TV, it's not. It's like <laughs> chicken It's chicken feed. And he goes, well, go home and think about it. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll pull one over on him. So I came back and I said, I want 40 grand. And he basically just took it out of his pocket. Here you go, mate. <laughs> and I thought I was, I was winning. And um, so that's how I got hired. And uh, yeah, and then I, I went in with my chef attitude and thought my, my shit didn't stink. And then the second episode, they just told me how crap I was. They were like, you're shit, like blah, blah, blah. I was like, wow. Because I'd always been the top of my game. And then you're, at, you're not at the top of your game. You're, it's a different, as you know, TV is a different beast. Yeah. And you have to sort of learn how to, 
you know, take criticism and whatever and, and, and basically react. And uh, from then on, I, I started to learn how to do TV and hopefully I got better. <laughs> and what was that like, you know, as you, as you said, as it went on with the TV and combining that with, you know, people coming on and, and, and cooking and was that something you enjoyed? Yeah, I think I, I sort of went hard at the start. Like, and I was sort of known as a tough guy and they loved that in the TV. And I said, I'll just play along to this. And then, but you don't realize like when you're on TV, especially like in the, in the heyday, like everyone just, there was no apps or whatever. Everyone watched TV. It's yeah. not like now. Yeah. And you go to the shop and people are like, oh, you're a bit hard. You're a bit of a wanker. And I'm like, whoa. And then people are recognizing you and, and telling you they don't like you or something. And I'm like, oh, this, is, this beast is a bit bigger than I thought. Mm. So I was sort of saying to the guys, I need to sort of change the sort of persona a bit and, and let it down a bit because that's not really who I am. <laughs> well, that's it. It's the same with us with Bondi Rescue. It's, um, you know, we came in when there's, there's only TV, you know, four channels, that was it. And uh, yeah. people, uh, it's all they had to watch. And, yeah, it was um, something that it had to change not not the way we did things, but you could tell the uh, the beast was bigger once people could see what you did. Yeah, but it, the beast, you go to the pub and heads are turning, and then you might like used to mess around with your mates or be an idiot. Now you're like, oh, and then you've got those horrible people in the Daily Mail who <laughs> who will get a picture of you just out of context and make a story, and yeah. you're just like, oh, everything's changed. You got to watch what you do. Now, with the, the shows, people coming on, were they, you know, some could cook quite well and some would probably be not that good at all? Some could cook and then some just wanted to be famous. You know what I mean? You wanted their 15 minutes of fame. And in the early days, they probably got it. You don't really get it now because um, everyone's sick of reality TV stars. <laughs> so in the, in the early days, they, um, I sort of whittled them out pretty quick. Like if you couldn't cook, I wasn't interested in you. Yeah, so a lot of them didn't like me. <laughs> now also you've got a cookbook out and, and did that come after the TV you know once you get a bit of a profile other doors start opening let's get it right I got two cookbooks two, two, <laughs> two, two. <laughs> one was for kitchen so that was a very chefy book that I did when I had four in hand and, and four four day and so very chefy and but it, like it was great. Like whoever gets, you know, as a kid who's not really good at spelling and, and writing in school gets to do a book. Like I was like, it was a very proud moment actually to get your first cookbook and my, you know, your parents see you wrote a book. My even my uh, my first ever school teacher, like when I was seven to twelve, was like, "Hey, of all people, I didn't think you'd write a book." Like <laughs> I, I actually went over and seen him last year and gave him two books, and he's like, "Wow, of all people." Um, yeah, so all that comes out. And I did a second book, which is more a family book. Well, books are, um, it's a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work for not a lot of return. But it's good to do. But I, like, I, I, I'm not one of these chefs that puts out a book every year because a lot of those guys have a team and they don't even see the recipes or whatever and they just put out books. Mm. And then you've got um, your other show. You did another show. You, you put a, another one out for you that you did. I did. Well, we did, we did a few. I, did, I went back to Ireland for Channel 7 and we did Collins Ireland. That was, that was a really good show. And, just showed Ireland in a great light. And then we did Kitchen Nightmares last year, which was, uh, it was good actually. It was hard work though. But that was going into the worst kitchens and trying to turn them around. But yeah, that was that was a lot of work though. And how is it now after COVID? Like, as you said, a lot of places struggled. A lot, a lot of people went broke. How's it going now? Is it starting to build back up again? 
Oh, everyone's saying it's starting to come back. But it's if you like you go drive down Oxford Street now, look how many places are closed. And you go up Paddo, how many places are for lease? And um, I get notifications on my phone of places for sale from the um, brokers. Like so many places are gone bust. And, you know, people are just like, it's too hard. It's like, you know, they wonder why chefs are angry because they're not like, you know, it's such a hard business to be in. Like there's mum and dad restaurants out there where they're working like like all hours they've got to give them and they're just making ends meet. And now you've got the interest rate rises on top of this. It's like, like at one stage, a lettuce in Sydney was $12. So what's it costing a restaurant to sell? You've got to like nearly multiply it by four to sell it. So it, the price of meat, price of fish has gone through the roof. We've had COVID, we've had fires, we've had floods. So the farmers are like on, on the ropes. So they, their food's gone through the roof. So the restaurant, and then people don't want to pay what it's worth. So what's the point in having a restaurant? You know what I mean? Mm. I've got, like, I've still got one, but I'm just, it's, it's such, it can such a draining business on like mums and dads who've got, you know, got young kids and have got restaurants and chefs who are going out to work every day. have got to pay the bills. Now the mortgage has gone up. It's like, you know, there has to be an easier way. Well, that sort of brings me, as you said, back in the in the day, it was brutal on, you know, physical, the abuse on chefs. And, you know, then they've gone through the, the, the droughts, the, the COVID, the fires. What's that do for mental health for your industry? Our, our industry is, is one of the highest drink, drugs, uh, divorce, suicide. A lot of my friends are not here anymore. And I think... We've, we've got better and we've lost a lot of good friends and we've sort of banded together as an industry. But it's still because, you know, chefs, their lifestyles are, they work all night and then they're supercharged from the energy of working all night. And then it's like 12 o'clock at night. What do we do? We used to go out drinking. You know what I mean? You go down the courthouse down in, or whatever down in, you know, Taylor Square till three in the morning and then come back at eight in the morning. And that was... You can't keep that lifestyle going. And that's what all the young guys, that's what you do when you're young. No, you don't. But, um, and then you've got all the other abuses that get involved and you see chefs just going off the rails. And it's like, it's, unless you've got good people around you, you can easily slip into that. And you have had, as you said, um, good friends that have had committed suicide. And Well, tell me a bit about that. That must be hard on you and, and, but we've done some mental health stuff in the past and I do a lot of it as well with being dealing with people at the beach because we get a lot of people, body retrievals we've got to do off the gap and everything and, and yeah. it's tough and, and it's tough. And to tell us a bit about, you know, how you deal with it yourself. Oh, I think one of the biggest, well, my good friend Jeremy Stroud, <clears throat> he um, committed suicide and I was at a restaurant and when I heard, like it was like, Someone found me and said, this, this this has happened and how it happened. I don't need to go into that, but how it happened. And I remember time stopped and I was in this restaurant and I stood up and I was falling over tables and I went outside and just fucking cried in the gutter. Like, And people were like, what is wrong with this guy? And then I went home, I just left, went home to my wife and we spoke about it. And then all our friends, we, we spoke about it, which was good. And... I think that was sort of a big eye opener for our industry where, you know, it's okay for men to cry and hug each other and tell each other that, um, you know, it's okay to cry or you're feeling down, call someone. 
So I think that was a big, big eye-opener for all of us, actually, and it made us talk, which is good. Yeah, because as you said, the earlier days, you wouldn't have been able to do that because they would just yeah. tell you to toughen up or go, you get away, you're, not, you're weak, and you would have copped that back in early days. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, like what your old man would say to you, like, what are you yeah. crying for? You know, yeah, don't yeah. be a girl. Like, <laughs> But then, you know, I had two girls. I've got two kids, and that mellows you out, and – like this whole thing about talking about stuff and wrong, like that's something you never had to deal with. But as a dad now, you, you, that, you're instilling that into them. And so is that something now that your industry is working really hard with that, to try and help people that maybe, like you're saying before, they're, they're on the brink of going broke, or the, the stresses of you know, interest rates. And do they identify the shifts and try and help them now? I think they do. But I mean, I'll, I'll tell you who's the worst is fucking landlords. They, yeah, they're, exactly. the, they're the real, like the ones who are still bleeding all these people dry, who are, who are making these people depressed and giving them hard times. Like there's no ease on rent or any of that, Mark. Mm. Mm. But I think as in Shefland and front of house, look, when um, Jock died this year, mm. like, that was natural causes. But everyone came together and was ringing, is everyone okay? And it's okay to be upset. And that, that was a big shock as well. So I think, I think everyone's talking now, which is good. It's not like the old days. And I think like the hours are better, the pay is better if you don't own the joint. But if you own the joint, the stress is massive. Yeah. Yeah, it must be unbelievable, the stress of um, especially the big restaurants. And you said you've still got a restaurant now. What, what one's that? I've got Casa Ray by Fastnick. So I took over the old Tattersall site on Casa Ray Street. So it's good. It's good. It's going well. That's good, yeah. Mate, now we also did the domestic violence against women. We did that uh, a while ago together and that, yeah, was, uh, yeah. that was a good campaign. It was. It was a great campaign because like, I, I live in a house of three women, like, you know, <laughs> and you couldn't think of anything worse than, you know, domestic violence, especially and kids seeing it. And then I've just been watching the TV lately and it's out of control. Like the amount of women who are getting, who are dying at the hands of, you know, men, it's, it's like, it's, it's something that has to be, you know, we need to sort it out. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be getting worse, doesn't it? It's just, you hear, whether we're just hearing more about it now or people are, maybe the women now are speaking more about it and they're speaking up. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, well, well lately they're, they're, they're dying. That's what you're hearing is another woman has died. And you're like, how does this happen? But I mean, well, I, I actually don't know how it happens because I've never, I've never, you know, witnessed it or, or you know what I mean? Maybe if, if I hit my wife, I'd be dead. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying it's like it, it's, not, it's not in my realm and I don't know how people can do it. Yeah, and I, I same with me. I haven't really seen it face, you know, in front of me. But since doing that campaign, it really opened my eyes and, and listening to some of the other women and what they were talking about, what they've been through, and yeah, it's it's quite traumatic on on what they must go through. They're very strong. What I noticed, <clears throat> what I, well realized how strong those women were, like the women who've come out of it and and survived, and they're great. Um, role models for their daughters and whatever. And it's and it's not just a woman's problem. Men need to speak about it as well. It's, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good way to go is that, and I think that's what we were doing as well as trying to get to the men and, and, and try and uh, get men to be better as well and, and educate them in, in what's going on. Yeah, but even kids, young boys, it's about, it's about, you know, 
like I was, I think I was brought up quite well. It was about respect and yeah, boys will be boys. That, that doesn't uh, work anymore. That doesn't fly. Like you, it's about respect to girls. And now I've got girls and it's, everything's about con- to teach them about consent from an early age. And I think that's a good place. You've got to start young in schools. Yeah, I've got two girls as well. So maybe that does give you a, a different perspective on, you know, growing up, watching them grow up. And, and I suppose the worry of, of, of seeing them go out and do things on their own. And yeah, it can be, it can be quite stressful as well. That's see, that's our karma. God, we've done something wrong in life, and God has given us daughters, and now we've got to worry about it for the next how many years. That's what an old bloke told me uh, years ago at the beach. He said, uh, "You've got two daughters." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, well, that's that's payback, mate." One hundred percent. Now you're going to go through what all those other parents went through. Exactly. Well, mate, what's what's next now? What's for uh, for you? You've got your restaurant, and is there any girls? You know, the future, is there something you want to do that you haven't done so far in your life? I'm actually, like, I've just taken sort of a step back because I actually, um, I wasn't well for a while and um, I was filming MKR in New Zealand and then we filmed MKR Australia and I was like, I don't feel well. So I went to my doctor and I was like, this is wrong with my stomach. And my doctor goes, oh, you know, that sounds like bowel cancer to me. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit, like fucking drop the ball. <laughs> like you couldn't have put that a better way. So I, for three weeks, I had to wait to go in for a surgery just to have a look. And in those three weeks, I was like, I need to slow down. I need to just calm down and whatever. And then I, I went for surgery. So it wasn't that, but like I'm, sort of, I'm sorting it out, but it's not that bad. But for three weeks, I was like, I was on Dr. Google, like going, I've got cancer. And how am I going to pay off my house? Because like we've all got a mortgage. Uh, like who's going to look after my family? So for three weeks I was just, you know, pondering life, and and now I'm I'm just I'm trying to just you know stay stay easy for a bit. Um, but I am going back to New Zealand for MKR New Zealand in um, end of September for six weeks. But um, I think it was a bit of an eye opener that was. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, yeah, tougher. That three weeks, like trying to sleep and you're thinking oh. about it, you're trying to work out is it or not. And that's what I was going to say. It must have – it puts life into perspective, doesn't it? My wife goes, easy now. Like it was, it was a good day because the next day I was up at half five. I've got the sunset on my, <laughs> on my Insta. How good is life? And I was like, you know, wow. Like that was – because I was thinking it could so easy have gone the other way. And – um it does put life in, in perspective, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, there's more to life than uh, what we think. We think it's, you know, one way where we're going, but it's there's there's a way more to it. Yeah. It's a big wake up call. Yeah. Well, mate, it's, uh, it's good having you in the shack. Uh, at the end of the interview, I do uh, a segment, my f- uh, five fun facts. So I'm going to throw a few questions at you and yeah. you can answer them however you want. Fastest fun facts. Let's go. <laughs> Right. Uh, what are the best and worst purchases you've ever made? Best purchase motorbike, Ducati. But I've got a Ducati. I used to have a few bikes and then COVID happened, so I had to sell them because my wife's like, we're not paying for all this. So <laughs> I've got one now, so I would say motorbikes. Worst, what would be the worst? Worst was probably too many motorbikes. Too many? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, cats or dogs and why? Dogs, 100%. 
Cat, cats are pricks, I tell you. <laughs> Do, like my dogs, they, they love you, right? They follow you around. They, they listen to you. Cats are not interested in people. I'm sure there's a lot of cat lovers out there who hate me for saying that, but <laughs> dogs are cats. cats. What, what are you most proud of? I would say being a dad and having, like, good kids. I think it's, like, you can say work and you'd all this and awards. Awards don't mean shit at the end of the day. I've a, I've, a, I've a wall full of awards. It doesn't mean shit. It doesn't pay bills. I think a um, good family, actually. Me and my wife, like, we, we've got a good family. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? What did I see this week? Most interesting thing that I've seen... I've just a plaque on the wall that said "Welcome to Collins Parties 50." That was the most interesting. <laughs> I had a 50th, and that was a bit of like, "Wow, I'm 50." Like that was that was interesting. <laughs> but uh, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Oh, "Give Me Shelter," Rolling Stones. Yeah, I played that bit of that at my party yeah, the other night. Yeah, that's a, yeah. yeah. You would have. Well, tell us a bit about the party. Uh, you've happy birthday! Congratulations, mate! You've made 50. Yeah, just about. Yeah, it was great. All my <laughs> mates flew in who I worked with. So in, from those early days as chefs, and they were all like, all over Australia now, and a lot of the chefs I know closed their restaurants because it was on Saturday night and turned up, and and people just flew in, and there was like 150 people there. And it was just a lot of love in the room because a lot of my friends have had illnesses and, and, and their wives have had illnesses and, you know, and we're getting to that age, you know what I mean? And it was just a lot of love in the room, and it was great to just catch up. It would have been a lot of people you hadn't seen for a long time that have come off from all around the world. Yeah, and then COVID, like, knocked us around for ages. But it was – you, you realise, like, when I had my 40th, I was blind, right? I don't even remember that party. I was blind. So, like, my 50th, you got to go – like, there's so many – I took time and to hug everyone there, and it was like – you start to realise as you get older, like, who your friends are, you know what I mean? In, in the bad times, they've always been there, and it's you got to thank them. Well, that's one thing I've realised too. Your, your friends stand out, don't they? Especially, uh, especially when you've done, you know you've, you've done TV, you know, high profile chef. Your uh, yeah, your friends are you work your friends out pretty quick. Mate, TV is um, you, you learn pretty quick. I I believed everyone in the early days. Everyone's your friends. No one's out to do you over. Like this is this. Like, mate, now I'm like, I watch everything and I know who my <laughs> friends are and who just wants to know you because you're on TV. Yeah, 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 100%. Well, Colin, mate, it's great having you in, having a chat, telling your story and uh, hopefully uh, your restaurant continues really, really well and it's a success. And, uh, mate, we'll uh, catch you on the TV soon and maybe when you get down to Bondi, mate, we'll catch up. We'll have a beverage when you're off duty. When you're for sure, <laughs> for sure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having Cheers, me. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Now let's go to Beach Banner. And this week in the Beach Shack, we've got uh, Billy Morris back to have a chat. Now, Bill, back in the days, we uh, used to play plenty of practical jokes on, on the guys. It's uh, not as much these days because... We're a bit more restricted, but there were some fun times, weren't there? There was, mate. Yeah, a lot of lot of idle times. <laughs> idle times, mate, for uh, busy hands. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one that stands out? Yeah, look, we we had a guy working with us at the time. His uh, his nickname was Paunch because the first day he started. Remember the old TV show, the yeah. Chips. <laughs> so. 
So they got Eric Estrada, he had the, the gold wafer of sunnies. So Paunch had a pair of those sunnies and the first day he started, he got on the bike because we had we didn't have we didn't have the ATVs back then. We we just had the quad bikes. Yeah. So he got on the quad bike, he got on there about eight o'clock in the morning and didn't get off till five o'clock in the Arvo. <laughs> so so that, that that's how he got his nickname. He was he was a good guy, you know, he's a really good guy. But anyway, he was uh he was probably one of the worst at it. Yeah, yeah. So one one of the big ones was of an afternoon, the guys because we had the the old timber red timber flagpoles, yeah, and we yeah. used to bring them just bring them back up to the beach for the end of the day, yeah, yeah, and and bury them in, dig them in. So the guys had uh, they they'd come there, and one of the other lifeguards he's put a uh, he's nailed bits of timber on the bottom and buried it. it took him hours, it took him hours after work to go down and did it. So to, to do it, so. At six o'clock the next morning, when the other guys come down, they can't get the flagpoles out. Yeah, so yeah. they end up they end up with like a big hole, like about eight <laughs> foot eight foot around. <laughs> so anyway, point is it's raining, you know. So point is cranky. This he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> so this bloke's got plenty of time on his hands, and he, he's one of these guys that doesn't get bored easy. So he'll sit there and spend hours trying to think of stuff. <laughs> so northerly blowing. So he got blue bottles on the beach. So he's got the tails of these blue bottles and he, he's got them and he's thread them through a needle and he's gone around all the guys' speedos and he's thread them through the speedos. And so he's, and then he's hanging their speedos back up in their lockers. So, so the guys have started work, they come in, they put their speedos on and they've gone outside. You know, summertime, it's starting to get hot. So they started to sweat. And as soon as they get a bit of water on, they're thinking, oh, Jesus, what's going on here? It's <laughs> <laughs> taking them. So, so there's about four or five of the guys got all these blue bottle stings all around where their speedos were. And they're just going, oh, man, what's going on? It took ages to work out what it was. But, but, but that's what it was. But there was another guy that used to be a detective down there who worked on the beach part-time. So And and, the, and Paunch, mate, he was – Considered himself to be uh, a pretty attractive-looking bloke, you know. He, he thought he was pretty popular with the ladies, and he had he had the uh, the, the slick back blonde hair. So one of the other guys has got the uh, the dye that they put on the uh, the banknotes when they get wrong uh, when they get robbed. So when they wash their hands, they uh, it changes a different colour. So they sprinkled it into Ponch's brush. So Ponch has brushed his <laughs> he's brushed his hair and he's slicking his hair back. Of course, he's gone outside and it's got wet, dived in the water and got got wet. He's got this bright pink hair and he's down the middle, busy day in the middle of Bondi and summer, you know, like 50,000 people on the beach and all these guys, all these people are looking at him and they're going, mate, I think you're at the wrong beach. You should be a Tamarama, mate. <laughs> oh, that's a great getting it. There's been so many pranks over the years. Mate, yeah, it's just that's just the way it is, isn't it? With the lifeguards, you know, it's just sort of, you know, that's that's the good thing about it too, Bruce. You know, yeah. everyone just gets on and has a laugh, and yeah, yeah, mate, that's uh, that's the way it is. It's uh, it's something that uh, we continue on. It's a tradition continues. Yeah, definitely, mate. Definitely, I don't. I wouldn't like to see that one go by the way. So they might have to tone a few of them down, down a bit over the years, but uh, yeah. Yeah, they're a bit more a bit more toned down these days to what we used yeah, to do. But anyway, yeah, it's uh, still a bit of fun though. <laughs> yeah, definitely, mate. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, Billy, mate. It's great to have you in the beach shack. I'll uh, we'll catch up very soon. No worries, Bruce. Thanks, mate. Have a great day. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Peter. He's from Sydney. Out there at Penrith in the western suburbs, he says, uh, I'm coming down to do the Cinder Surf. He said, does it uh, going to be very crowded, but does it make any difference on the beach 
uh, when Cities to Surf is on. Well, Peter, it, it makes a, a bit of difference. It's probably like dealing with a summer crowd with City to Surf. You know, you've got up to 80,000 people in the event, plus everybody else that comes down to watch the event. And if it's a nice day, even though it's winter, uh, people will come down, sit on the beach, enjoy the day and also jump in the water, which potentially at this stage is around 17 degrees. So you need to be careful. You don't get cold water shock when you first jump into the water. And as always, as we say, uh, swim between the red and yellow flags. But if you find yourself in a rip and struggling and you're starting to panic, float and go with the flow of the water, it's a good chance you'll end up on the sandbank or the waves will push you back to shore. But the longer you can float, the more chance you have of getting rescued by a lifeguard. So thanks, Peter, for your letter. I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.